Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Sermon Series. สวัสดีค่ะยินดีต้อนรับสู่บทเทศนาของบท Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. And here's this week's sermon. We hope you enjoy it too. Morning, church. Back in January, I preached on what is known in the church calendar year as Epiphany. Epiphany means revelation, and we looked at several ways we experience God revealing Himself to us in nature, in His Word, in the arts, in prayer. God is always revealing Himself, and His self-revelation comes from His desire that all of us and all the world would know Him, would enjoy a relationship with Him, would experience His loving lordship. Well, I was, as I was working on that message back in January, I had one more point that God had given me, but I was sick with a fever at the time, and I just didn't have any more steam to uh, work on it. And I also realized that I wouldn't have had enough time in the sermon to adequately develop the point. So this morning's message is Epiphany Part Two. Our scripture for this morning comes from John chapter 14. We'll be reading together verses 15 through 24. John 14:15 through 24. Jesus said, "If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans; I will come to you." Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, "But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world?" Jesus replied, "Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own; they belong to the Father who sent me." In particular, this morning I'd like to focus in on John 14, verse 21: "Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me." The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. In this, Jesus hinges together knowing Him, loving Him, obeying Him, and experiencing more of Him. The setting for this passage begins with chapter 13 of John. Jesus and his disciples shared together the Passover meal in the upper room. John tells us that Jesus loved his disciples and showed them the full extent of his love. He washed their feet, serving them, teaching them that they should wash one another's feet, that they should be servants of one another. Jesus predicted his betrayal, and he told his disciples he would be with them only a little longer. And at that point, he gave them a new command to love one another. Then, chapter 14 begins with Jesus comforting the disciples who are undone. By his telling them that he will only be with them a little longer, that he will be betrayed by one of them, and that Peter, their leader, will fail him. Jesus urges them not to let their hearts be troubled and to trust in God and in Him, 
And he told them he was going to his father's house to prepare a place for them. And then he explains to them that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that people come to the father through him, and that he shows the father. And then the passage that we read, and then the closing verses of the chapter, um, in them Jesus explains a bit more about the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in Jesus' name, and he speaks further words of peace to them. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Whoever has my commands. The Greek word for has means to hold or to possess, to take them into one's inner being and make them one's own. I know of no other way to know or to have the Lord's commands than to spend time in his word. It's easy, isn't it, to fill our lives with everything else, and sometimes it's challenging to find time or make time to spend in his word, but as we do so, God reveals what we are to be and do. What commands might Jesus be referring to here? Well, we could start with the command that he just gave in the same upper room setting, John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It would be easier to obey Jesus, wouldn't it, if he had said to love those who love you or to love those you like. One another. That includes everyone in the church. That includes everyone in the body of Christ. Or there's Jesus' command to love your enemies. I was thinking this week that I could obey that better if he commanded me to tolerate my enemies or ignore my enemies. He said, love your enemies. I did a Google search for Jesus' commands, curious what I might find. And a number of sites shared a list of 50 commands of Jesus. Here are some of them. Repent. Follow me. Do not commit adultery. Keep your word. Go the second mile. Don't judge. It's a little hard. Do to others as you want them to do to you. Fear God, not man. Honor your parents. Deny yourself. Go to those who offend you. Forgive offenders. Go to those you have offended and be reconciled. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, pay your taxes. And give to God what is God's. Give your tithe. Make disciples. Teach disciples to obey. Beware of covetousness. And the list goes on. By the way, I put some copies of the list of all 50, and they include the scripture references. It's out on the Welcome Center, just in case you'd like to do some Bible study and go through and see Jesus' commands. Jesus goes on by saying that the one who loves him doesn't just have his commands, but that person keeps his commands. Obedience, according to Jesus, is the mark or measure of true love. Love to Jesus is not a thing of words. If it's real, it is shown in deeds. This reminds us of 1 John 3.18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
Jesus goes on. The one who loves Jesus has his commands and keeps them, will be loved by the Father, and will be loved by Jesus. This isn't, please understand this clearly, this isn't in a meritorious way. We can do nothing. I don't know how to highlight that enough. We can do nothing to earn God's love. And nothing we can do will ever make him love us less. This isn't love in a meritorious way. This is a relational picture of love. The lover keeps the commands of the loved one, and the loved one is not indifferent to the response to him. Loving begets love. That's how relationships work. Lastly, Jesus also says he will show himself to the one who loves him, to the one who has his commands and keeps them. As Jesus shows himself, reveals himself, we can know him more, and we can grasp more of what he commands, which leads to further obedience. This circular movement in the spiritual life is what moves us along in the process of being sanctified. God reveals himself. That's where it starts. We read and study and grasp his commands. Then we obey his commands. And when we do that, the Father's and Jesus' love are further experienced, and and love is the best motivator for, for obedience. Jesus shows himself, reveals himself to the one who obeys. And as he reveals himself, then we know him more. And as we know him more, then we obey him more. As we obey him more, we experience more of his love. He reveals more to us, and on the process goes. When I was a youth pastor years ago, one of my students, his name was Richard, came to see me at my office, distraught because God never spoke to him. My suggestion to him that day was perhaps God got tired of him not listening, so he stopped speaking. Why would God keep speaking to someone who doesn't listen? A.W. Tozer says it this way, to expose our hearts to truth and consistently refuse or neglect to obey the impulses it arouses is to stymie the motions of life within us, and if persisted in, to grieve the Holy Spirit into silence. Tozer also wrote, if we are alert enough to hear God's voice, we must not content ourselves with merely believing it. Commands are to be obeyed, and until we have obeyed them, we have done exactly nothing at all about them. And to have heard them and not obeyed them is infinitely worse than never to have heard them at all. I urged the young man that day that if he truly wanted to start to hear God, that he should start to obey God. I'd say the same today. If you want more of God, you want him to reveal himself to you, you want to hear his voice, you want to know him more, then humbly and sincerely ask him to show you one command, just one, that he wants you to obey. Then possess that command, take it into your inner being and make it your own. Obey that command. The Father in Jesus will love you and Jesus will show himself to you. As we do this over and over we become changed, transformed people. John Ortberg wrote of a man named Hank, and it's not our Hank. He says, he had attended church since he was a boy, and now he was in his 60s. He was known by everyone, but no one really knew him. He had difficulty loving his wife. His children could not speak freely with him and felt no affection from him. 
He was not concerned for the poor, had little tolerance for those outside the church, and tended to judge harshly those who were inside. One day, an elder in the church asked him, Hank, are you happy? Without smiling, he responded, yes. Well, then, the elder replied, tell your face. Hank's outside demeanor mirrored a deeper and much more tragic reality. Hank was not changing. He was not being transformed. But here's what's most remarkable. Nobody in the church was surprised by this. No one called an emergency meeting of the Board of Elders to consider this strange case of a person who wasn't changing. No one really expected Hank to change, so no one was surprised when it didn't happen. There were other expectations in the church. People expected that Hank would attend services, would read the Bible, would affirm the right beliefs, would give money, and do church work. But people did not expect that day by day, month by month, decade by decade, Hank would be more transformed into the likeness of Jesus. People did not expect he would become a progressively more loving, joyful, winsome person. So they were not shocked when it did not happen. What about our church? And what about you? Do you expect to change day by day, year by year, decade by decade? Are you studying and grasping his commands, taking them into your being, making them a part of you, then obeying his commands? Are you experiencing the love of the Father, the love of Jesus? Is Jesus showing more of himself to you so that you can know and obey him even more? Loving Jesus and doing what he commands is the key to the transformation process. This process of being transformed produces a life that looks just like Jesus. Ken Geyer, in his book, Windows of the Soul, tells this story. He writes, he was an English missionary in India whose mission board required him to keep detailed financial records for which he had to be skilled at double-entry bookkeeping. Double-entry bookkeeping is hard. He wasn't skilled at it. He had no background in accounting or business. He only had a calling to be a missionary. But his balances were always off, and the separate accounts he was supposed to keep kept getting mixed. And so the mission board released him. Unfit for the mission field was their assessment, when in truth he was only unfit for bookkeeping. He left without incident. Nobody knew where. Years later, a woman missionary visited a remote jungle village to introduce the natives to Jesus. She told them of his kindness, Jesus' kindness, and his love for the poor, how he went to their home to eat with them, how he visited them when they were sick, how he fed the hungry, healed the sick, bound up the wounds of the brokenhearted, and how children loved to follow him. The eyes of the natives lit up. Their faces beamed, and one of them exclaimed, Miss Sahib, we know him well. He has been living here for years. When they took her to see him, it was the man who years earlier had been dismissed by the mission board. He had settled there to do his work, sequestered from the double-entry tyranny of bookkeeping. Whenever anyone was sick, he visited them and waited up all night outside their hut if necessary, checking on them, tending to their needs. When they were hurt, he nursed their wounds. For the old and the infirm, he brought food and water. When cholera broke out in the village, he went from hut to hut, doing what he could to help. Geyer continued, I wonder, 
If someone were to come to our village, our neighborhood, our place of work, and that person began to describe Jesus, would anybody hearing the description say, we know him well, he has been living here for years. That kind of transformed Christ-like life begins with loving Jesus and obeying what he commands, one command at a time. As we love and obey him, our life will look more and more like Jesus. Jesus shows himself to the one who has his commands and keeps them, and he also shows himself through that one. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This morning we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper together, remembering the sacrificial death of Jesus, his body broken and his blood shed for us, thinking again about the depth of his love demonstrated on the cross. Nehemiah 9, verses 16 and 17, describes the Israelites' disobedience when the Lord told them to go in and take possession of the promised land. Nehemiah wrote, But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Stiff-necked. That's a powerful word, isn't it? It's a fitting description of us today when we are disobedient. But the rest of verse 17 reminds us of God's motivation for the cross. Nehemiah wrote, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Obedience is our apt response to that love. It's our way of demonstrating our love for him. At this time, as the servers for communion gather themselves, I'd like to share, uh, in closing, a story by Bob Stromberg. He writes about his children. He writes, Our eldest son, Nathan, displayed little interest in walking through the first 14 months of his life. Toward the end of that time, he could walk. He just didn't care for heights and was content to stay a little lower to the ground. I noticed, though, each time I unlocked the front screen door, his eyes studied and his hands mimicked my every move. When he finally did decide walking was a viable form of transportation, he did not need to be taught how to unlock the door or how to stumble 50 feet down the driveway and into the road. I'm talking about the road that looked like a New England meadow lane but was actually a state highway. The road that was posted at 15 miles per hour but tolerated trucks pushing 60. I had no difficulty catching him before he reached the road as long as I knew he was on his way. But what if I wasn't looking even once? An older neighbor couple whose children were grown and perfect sat on our sofa and offered a suggestion. Oh, Bob and Judy, what you want to try is the diversion method. How does it actually work, I asked. Well, our neighbor, in a soft voice, leaning forward, answered as though she were about to tell me the secret to financial security. She said, when your child approaches the road, you simply divert him away. That's why they call it the diversion method. It sure worked for us. No, no, you don't understand, I explained. I know this child. 
I'll divert and he'll revert or invert, whichever one it is. You know what I mean? The kid will vert on me. <laughs> yes, yes, of course he will, my neighbor counseled, putting his arm around my shoulder. But therein lies the beauty of this method. For you, Bob, are the adult. Soon your son will tire of your persistent, patient, non-aggressive diversions, and he will simply cease his destructive behavior. Well, we tried it and proved to ourselves that our neighbors didn't know anyone in our family very well. For Nathan, it became a great game. He loved running away from Dad and toward the road, so Dad would chase him and turn him around so he could giggle and run away from Dad again. After supper, as I sat on the couch watching the evening news, he'd come up to me, looking very much like a dog with a stick in his mouth, and ask if we could go outside and turn around. <laughs> I hated the diversion method. With Nathan, diversion was a full-time job. Stromberg continues, I was starting to come apart. Every couple months, while waiting in the grocery store checkout line, a recurring tabloid headline caught my eye. Mother locks children in attic for 40 years. <laughs> I actually found myself thinking, well, the kids might not have enjoyed it, but at least they didn't have to fall down the cellar stairs, get their tongues caught in an outlet, swallow a softball, or get hit by a car. Of course, to consider this option would be ludicrous and even diabolical. To take away all freedom may save the body, but it destroys the soul, not something we as loving parents were anxious to do. Fortunately, our problem with the road was solved. Unfortunately, it was solved by accident. We had a cat, the key word here being had. The cat's name was Lucky. I got to take a sip of water. Let that one sink in. <clears throat> one beautiful early autumn morning with frost sparkling on the grass and maple leaves hang gliding through a deep blue cloudless sky, Nathan, then two and a half, came to me dragging his baby brother by the foot. Can me and Larsie go feed hi-ho the neighbor's horse? How do you ask, I responded, playfully raising an eyebrow. Please, he sang, releasing his brother who had not yet awakened for the day. Okay, I said, ask mommy for some carrots, and after breakfast, we'll all go feed hi-ho. Half an hour later, the four of us walked down the driveway. Five feet from the end, Judy and I simultaneously spotted what I assumed was our cat lying in the road. It was hard to tell for sure, as Lucky was so much longer than usual. <clears throat> Our own revulsion was overcome by concern that Nathan not see, but it was too late. Though he'd never experienced anything like this before, and though what lay stretching before us looked nothing like his kitty, Nathan's mind somehow reconstructed what had been a lifelong friend. Daddy, look, he said, pointing. Oh, Nathan, I said with all the sadness I really felt. Poor Lucky went in the road and got hit by a car. Holding tightly to my hand, Nathan led the way to the end of the driveway. Beginning at his feet, he slowly traced with his eyes the long path of cat down the road. Without a word to me, he squatted and punctuating with a pointed finger, shouted at Lucky, Bad cat! I never again had to tell him to stay out of the road. I wish I learned, 
Stromberg goes on, I wish I learned as quickly. I too stand alongside a road. My heavenly father patiently tries to divert me away day after day after day, but it doesn't work. I suppose he could take away my freedom so I couldn't choose to disobey him, but he won't do that. Don't go in the road, he pleads. If you do, you will die. He doesn't say it to be cruel. He says it because he loves me and he knows what the road will do. Is witnessing the death in the road of God's own son sufficient to change my behavior, my disobedience? Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This morning we'll be celebrating communion by coming up front. The servers can come to the front. We'll exit from the right side of the row, come to the front for the elements, and then return to the other side of your row. If you'd like time to reflect and pray after receiving the elements, feel free to find an empty seat along the front. Gluten-free bread is also provided. There are small packets in the bread trays. You don't have to be a member of this church to partake of communion. All who love Jesus are invited. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, this morning for your willing sacrifice on the cross, for the breaking of your body, Lord, and the spilling of your blood that was for our stiff-neckedness, for our disobedience, for our sinfulness. Lord, the gratitude in our hearts for the gift of life that you've given overflows. Help us today as we partake of the bread and of the cup. Help us to remember you and all you did for us. 
Help us to show our love for you in the ways that we live. Help our gratitude, Lord, to overflow into obedience. This we pray in your name. Amen. Let's join together in the communion response. My brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Come to the table. <laughs> 